0: we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, if you want to turn there, Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9 this morning. So the Word of God reads, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where, they were, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on the third day, this, on three-day Sabbath. How about if I just start over? <laughs> and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, "...could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, whom have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these sayings, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So as we have encountered like almost every Sunday, we are finding Paul is at the synagogues. So it says to us that Paul, as his custom, goes to the synagogues, and, and there for for three weeks, you know, three Sabbaths, he begins to reason with the people from the scriptures. And as I was studying this passage, and I was just asking God, okay, God, what is it that is our, our takeaway? What is it that you want us to, you know, learn from this passage of Scripture? And so I was having this conversation with God, and I just kept seeing—it seems like I just kept seeing the same thing over and over. Like, you know, Paul comes in, he goes to the synagogue, he has this conversation, there's problems, he ends up getting in trouble, and, you know, there's this, always this, this pattern— and I just couldn't get out of that loop. Like, I just keep saying the same thing, so I don't know. Is there a, is there a different takeaway than what we've been taking away every week? And, and then all of a sudden, I just I couldn't help but kept meditating on just the first two verses, or like the first three, actually, but, but verses two and three in particular. It says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them with the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And I began to just ask some questions, like, why did Paul do this? I mean, why is it that Paul always goes to the synagogue? Wasn't there, you know, like many other people that needed Jesus besides just the people that always seemed to be rejecting Jesus? And, you know, why doesn't he reach outside of that realm? Why is it that he has to keep reasoning with them? Three weeks he's reasoning with them, and it seems like that it's just the same old, same old. Why, did, why is it that that was the basis for his reasoning, you know? Um, what was the, the topic of his reasoning? I just asked these questions, and then all of a sudden it just seems like that the Lord began to speak to me about just that in particular, and I begin to realize that there's some things here that I think are important. You know, Sam uh, Chan, not to be mistaken as for Francis Chan, but Sam Chan, he wrote a book, and it was entitled Evangelism in a Skeptical World. In it, he makes a list of just barriers between Jesus and non-Christians. In other words, why, why do people seem to continue to reject Jesus? In in the religious culture as well as outside of the religious culture, and so he kind of makes in his book he just kind of lays this out what he thinks is the problem. And Sam points out, you know, a lot of things. You know, we have this good news about Jesus, and this is really good news. But every time we try to share the good news with people, you know, our, our family, friends, coworkers, people who are believers as well as non-believers, it just seems like we aren't getting anything accomplished what is it that stands in the way and so his book is just about those particular things and one of the things that I realized as I was reading and studying and praying about this passage of scripture is that everything that Sam kind of lays out in his book you know evangelism in a skeptical world and why people reject Jesus is the thing that that Paul continues to encounter as well in fact what Sam lays out for us to try to do in order to combat this, Paul is constantly doing. And it just, I realized that, you know, the world has not changed as much as we think it has changed. You know, it's the same old, same old. In fact, I think Paul could have written that book that Sam wrote, right? In fact, that's what he was, I think, doing the very things that Sam was writing in his book Paul was doing in the first century at the very beginning. And I think that there is just something about that that I think is important. For one, I think what Sam did, Sam uh, Chan, Chan did, is very important because we have to constantly be revisiting these kinds of topics. But I think it is worthwhile for us because obviously we aren't doing any better than what Paul was struggling with in the first century, and that is converting people to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, that He is the only way, He is the, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him, and to convince people to, you know, uh, believe this. And so Paul, he offers actionable advice for making the unbelievableness of Jesus being who He says He is to be believable. In the way that he approached. And so I just want us to look at this because I think it, it's helpful. It will help us be more effective when we are trying to really get our grandkids to understand that Jesus is who he says he is. And it'll help when we are trying to get our kids to believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God, the God in the flesh. It will help us when we are trying to help you know, our co-workers find who Jesus is. It will help us when we are just trying to share Jesus just on a day-to-day basis with a stranger. And so we know that Jesus is the bread of life and that he continues to satisfy and he continues to help us with discontentment and find contentment in life. We know that he is the living water that continues to quench our thirst over and over and over again. So what was Paul's approach for sharing Jesus? Here's the four things that I want to point out. The first one is is that Paul always looked for common ground. That's something I think really noteworthy to understand because there's going to be people in your life that you're going to want for them to really get it and understand who Jesus truly is. And the very first place I think that Paul shows us that he always started and the first place that we should start is finding common ground with those people. And that's why he is in the synagogue in the first place. Why is he there? Because they, those are people that he already can relate to and he's already got common ground with them. What is it he does when he first gets there? He, he knows that they are going to be opening up this word that they call the Word of God, right? The Old Testament. And that they're going to study it. Backwards and forward. And he already knows that he has common ground with these people. And so that's why he goes there. And the apostles were constantly doing this. Whenever, you know, the apostles evangelize, they look for some common ground for, that both they and their audiences could connect with. And that's where they begin to build this, you know, this relationship or this reasoning for which they lay it out. Chan writes this, he says, For the Jewish audience, the common ground was Scripture. But for the Gentile audience, unfamiliar with Scripture, the common ground was God's common grace, general revelation, universal human desires, and their cultural authors. One of the things we'll find out about that is when Paul ends up in Athens he doesn't have that common ground, you know, that synagogue or that place to lay out scripture. He just has idol after idol after idol that is represented. So he has to find that common ground somewhere else. But here, in this passage of scripture, Paul starts with the synagogue. And it's a a place that he knows that we can start with scripture. We all are believers in the same God, and this is where we can establish ourselves. And if you have people in your life that already believe that the Word of God is, is God's Word. It has the authority over everyone and everything, and that it has ultimate truth. You know, like what it says in Second Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed by God, and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And if you have people in your life that already believe that, then that's the common ground for which you start. You can just open up the Word of God with them and have a study with them and, and come out with, what does God think about this topic? It's not that hard, you know, when you have people in your life that, are living very contrary, like they are living outside of marriage or, or, you know, living in a homosexual relationship or whatever the topic would be, right, that is not of God, but they believe in the Word of God, then that's your common ground for which to have a conversation with them, is what does God actually say about this? And you can actually say, well, what does Jesus say? And you can have that conversation with them because they are not going to walk away just changing their direction in life and, and their philosophy of life just because you say that they should. But if they already believe in God and the Word of God, then that is something you can go to and they can help them understand, well, what does God say and who has authority And who is it that you are following kind of conversation. And that's what Paul finds himself here. But the reality is is that there's some people that that will not be your common ground where you start. And I think sometimes we need to understand this because sometimes we try to go to people who do not have that. They do not believe that the word of God is actually from God. They just think it's Ancient writings that are from people and people's thoughts, and they've always put this together. And it's not going to do you any good to quote Scripture to them. It's not going to do you any good to come to them in, along those lines. You've got to find a different type of common ground, you see. Sometimes you just need to take people like that, and you just teach them how to love. And when they're struggling with love, you try to encourage them to love even though they don't feel like they ought to love. Why? Because this will go well with you. You know, you need to be merciful to people even when you feel anger in you. And you just teach them this because when you are merciful, you'll be shown mercy. When you love, you'll be shown love. It's kind of like what Jesus says, you reap what you sow, right? And so we're just teaching them universal principles no matter where you live in the world. And We're not quoting scripture to them. We're just teaching them what Jesus has always taught us. You teach, you teach them, you know, just these these things. And at some point, they're going to be like, how did you learn to be so smart and wise? Well, I'm glad you asked. And then you can start teaching them about Jesus. But you've got to find common ground. Sometimes it, the common ground is like where Paul is right now in the synagogue. Sometimes the common ground is where Paul will be when he's in Athens or when they're not, he's not around people who believe that the Bible is true and you find common ground in other ways. But the reality is, is you're bringing Jesus to the table anytime and always, every time. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. We looked at this this not too many weeks ago, but 9, verse 20, he says, To the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law I become as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. The law. To the weak, I become weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to people that I may, by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And so that is something I think that Paul did everywhere he went, as he went to wherever his audience was, whomever it is that he was wanting to share Jesus and instantly tried to figure out where's our common ground, that's where we start. And whoever is in your life right now that you want for them to understand who Jesus is and to to you know claim him as their Lord and their Savior, that's the place you start, whether it's with your kids or grandkids or your coworkers or your friends. This is where you start with common ground. Here's another thing. Paul knew Jesus didn't fit their plausibility structure. Now, Chan says this about plausibility structures. He says, plausibility structures are accepted beliefs, convictions, and understandings that that either green light truth claims as plausible or red light them as implausible. And what he's saying there is that, for example, if I were to tell you, you know, most of us, you know, would say that it's a, a, a red light for sure when it comes to UFOs. Like, you know, if I were to tell you a story about a UFO I saw yesterday or or somebody else were to tell you, I, I think if I told you, you'd probably question whether you can believe anything from me, right? But, but you, if somebody told you about a UFO, you would be like, that's definitely implausible. Like, I just don't buy into that. Ironically enough, though, I have a book on my nightstand. I just don't know why it's still there. But it was given to me by some dearly people that I really care about a lot that are believers in God. And this book was written by believers in God. And they believe that the aliens have already invaded us and there's people around that are trying to completely overtake us by putting certain people in place. And I think that they think that Biden is one of those aliens, I believe. But anyhow, implausible for me. Red light for me, right, when we have those conversations. But don't you know that although Christians, we see that Jesus raising from the dead is a green light and very plausible. That there's a whole lot of people in the world that would put that on the red light special and say that that is so implausible. That that is just not the way reality works. And that is, these people are kind of loopy. And so this is kind of the thing that Paul is dealing with. Although Paul is not dealing with necessarily that they thought that it was impossible for somebody to come back from the dead. Right? Because a lot of them believe that that's possible or plausible. But they just didn't believe that it was Jesus that was going to accomplish this. And so Paul was having to. He knew that Jesus didn't fit their plausibility structure, and somehow he had to figure out how to reason. So remember, he's reasoning for three Sabbath days. He's reasoning. What he has to start with is common ground, the Word of God. And so what does he do? He goes to the Word of God and he begins to try to help them see that this is not. This is not only plausible. This is. This is exactly what they were always pointing to from the Old Testament all the way. They were always pointing to this person right here, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you as being the Christ. You know, Chain, in his book, he explains how community and experience and facts and evidence build such structures of plausible and implausible. In other words, we really get ingrained in us what we will believe and not believe And just about everything. You know, that's why when you walk into a second grade class and it comes election year, they will have a whole lot of opinions about who they should vote for, right? Where do you think they get that from? And do you think that that just goes away instantly as they grow older and older? As long as they have respect for their parents, they will buy into their parents' way. I was just talking to Matthew. You know, we were just texting back and forth and and we were talking about this, this passage of Scripture and I just was curious, like, so when was it that you realized that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God? Like, like when, when was it that that aha moment that you realized that he was who he says he was? And I was kind of thinking that I might already know the answer to this, but I was just curious that there was an aha moment, right? Because I had an aha moment. Um, and he just explained that I don't know that I ever really had that. Like, I just always seemed like I always knew, you know? And, and, and Lori would tell you the exact same thing. Hers was the same way. She didn't have this transformation, you know, from dark to light moments and, and uh, this kind of story. And I just think that that's awesome, by the way. And that is very biblical, by the way. This is, as followers of Jesus Christ, this is how we are to raise our kids. That they would always just know, Right. And that has also given them the, the greatest anchor for their life, since you know the truth. The greatest anchor for their life is this. What's the likelihood, do you think, that, that somebody's going to come along and convince Matthew that, uh, that Jesus raised him from the dead is very implausible and it's more plausible to believe that he didn't? What's the likelihood somebody to convince him to be an atheist is what I'm saying? Not very likely, right? Not very likely that somebody's going to convince him to be a an Hindu or a Buddhist or a, an Islamic person of faith. Not very likely. Be my guess, Matthew will die a believer in Jesus Christ as the son of the living God. Why? Because of the foundation for which he has. And it's the same way with Lori. And his foundation is... is Solid, His roots are deep within that faith, right? Now, just take that same kind of mentality and philosophy and and just apply it to somebody who is a Hindu or a Buddhist or an atheist or something of that sort. What's the likelihood of them being pulled out of that? If their roots are deep, it is really difficult. All I'm trying to say here is that these people that Paul was talking about… They were like a Matthew and a Lori and their roots were deep and this is what they have been. This stuff has been passed down thousands of years to them and been handed off and the likelihood of them just changing because somebody comes to our synagogue one day and for the last three days is reasoning to us, you know, about, from Scripture about this Jesus. So how did Paul take them from the implausible to the plausible, to to the not believe in Jesus, to believe in Jesus. And obviously not all of them did, but what we do know is that a whole bunch of women and a whole bunch of men began to believe who Jesus was. How did he reason with them? And I think that his reasoning would have had to been from Scripture, right? Quite a hurdle for him to overcome, by the way. But what we know about the Old Testament is that there was prophecy about Jesus. And things that were spoken didn't... Say Jesus, but they of the person that was going to come in the future, he was going to be born in Bethlehem, he was going to precede John the Baptist, he was going to enter Jerusalem on a donkey, he was going to be portrayed by his friends and receive 30 pieces of silver exact number, right? That, that, uh, uh, that his that he's going to have these accusers that he was going to die in a a manner by crucifixion, which they didn't even have crucifixion at the time. And during that time, he was going to be pierced by his hands and his feet. And on and on and on, the list goes on in the Old Testament about this particular person. Now, no doubt that somebody could have come along and knew that, like Jesus was was a Jewish man. He would have known that somebody was going to ride in on a donkey. And I think he could have, like, set that up, could he not? But could he have set up all of the other things that took place? Like where he was born, did he have any control over that? Did he have any control that the soldier was going to pierce him in his side? And all of these other hundreds of prophecies. And so Paul would have reason to them to try to change their implausible to plausible by just that. You know, that just so that we before we move on, Peter Stoner, in his classical book, The Science speaks calculated you know the chance of any man fulfilling all the prophecies that are in the old testament what would the likelihood be and he said it would be one in uh, 10 to the 17th power that is like one in 17 zeros i have no idea what that number is even that's just for him to fulfill a certain amount of prophecies right that would be like him, what he said is that would be like somebody taking Texas and putting, you know, uh, what is it, silver dollars down two feet deep, right, filling the whole state of Texas and painting one of those red, mixing them all up, and then leaving it and then taking a blind man, just having him drive or walk or wherever he wants across Texas, And the likelihood of him, when he goes down to pick one up blindfolded, he picks the one up that is painted red. What's the likelihood of that ever happening? That is one lottery that none of us are going to win, right? And so Paul is just trying to reason with them and help them understand that this is very plausible because the Word of God was always pointing to him. Now, that is one of the reasons that people... We're rejecting Jesus then, and it's also one of the reasons that people reject Jesus today. I was listening to Ben Harris and and uh, Jordan Peterson kind of debate this stuff back and forth, and Jordan Peterson's kind of somewhat a, a believer in the Bible because how could it have lasted this long kind of thing, but he's still pretty much a, very skeptical. Ben Harris is an atheist, claims to be an atheist, and is trying to debunk this. And they don't see this as plausible at all. And that's a whole different ball game. and those would be pretty hard people to convince, right? But the reason I bring that up is because of this. If tomorrow you woke up to the headline, the bones of Jesus Christ have been discovered, what would that do to your faith? The bones of Jesus Christ have been discovered because if the bones of Jesus Christ have been discovered, what does that say? He didn't resurrect, right? And if that would like question you or cause you to question, then it is so important that someone has this conversation with you like Paul was having with them. You see what I'm saying? If your faith can be rocked so easily, then you probably don't have the same circumstance for which maybe Matthew and Lori has. But even Matthew and Lori, I would say, ought to not have such fragile faith. Do you know that God does not want you to have that kind of fragile faith? God, unlike any of the other little g gods out there, has provided us with so much evidence that's unreal. There is just so much. Just like prophecy that I'm talking about right now and how it leads to Jesus, no, no mistakenly, that this was the person that it was prophesying because nobody else could have ever accomplished what he accomplished. But there's also so much other evidence out there that is to be discovered that God has made known. Just like when Jesus resurrected from the dead, it was isn't by accident that he wanted to come back and say goodbyes. He came back for the sure purpose of letting hundreds of people see him in his resurrected body so that people from all wakes of life and all different, you know, um, uh, connections and um, job-related, like you know, like some were, were high officials and some were lowly people. And they were all able to say, i seen the Jesus, the Christ. And they were all saying this. Why? Because God knew that we needed evidence for this. And so I think it is so important not only for us to have that concrete thing that we can say this is extremely plausible, but also, just to know that you're going to have people, just like Paul is running into people, that they need that. And the only way that you're going to bring them along is if you can lay this stuff down. Let me show you how this always pointed to Jesus. Let me show you this evidence. Let me talk about, let's just talk about creation in a minute and how, is it, what's the likelihood of all of this just happening to be? Let's talk about the human life for a second and the likelihood of us having this ability to even reason with one another right now. Where does it come from? Uh, Talk about moral law. And how is it that no matter where you live, there are certain things you just know are to be wrong. You don't kill people, you don't steal, you don't do these. Where did that come from? You know, just all of these different things that we have that point to it being very plausible. Here's the third thing, and that is that Paul knew that they needed to understand sin and guilt. And so will the people in your life will need to know this. They, will under, they need to understand that they have shamed God by them choosing to do it their way instead of his way. And they need to understand that they need a Savior. Do you need a Savior? I know that there are people that literally go to church very regularly that if they were to truly answer that, they would be like probably not. And the reason is is because we have a tendency to always compare ourselves to the next person to see if we are okay or not. Not if we believe that we are basically a good person, we probably won't need a savior cuz what do I need rescued from? I'm content, you know, everything is good, my intentions are mostly good, you know, I tell the truth, I've never killed anyone, I've never robbed a bank. I'm honest, trustworthy, I'm as good as the local elder at the church. Why would I need a Savior? I remember somebody asking me one time, a coworker worker asking me, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And I remember trying to think of that honestly, and I'm just thinking, well, I guess it depends. Like how lenient is this one who is going to be judging me? You know, and I don't know about you but I struggled in school and so I always figured out a way to get by and what I realized is that I love teachers that grade on curves anybody like teachers that grade on curves if you are super smart I bet you hate teachers that grade on curves right because it all of a sudden elevates people up to your level when you know that they don't deserve to be at your level Right, but when you're not at their level, it's kind of nice when the person. So I'm thinking, well, it depends. Does God grade on a curve? You know, does some some of those tests? You know, it was just like there's there's more than one right answer, and it really depends on like 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 it doesn't have to be precisely this, and it's either this or it's wrong. It could be this this or a little bit of this, and it still be okay right you know those kinds of questions and so it kind of depends is it one of those things is there more than one answer to the question does the teacher consider learning disabilities (laughs) I like those teachers too you know some teachers grade that way so it just depends I'm thinking it'd be helpful to know like how does he grade and if I knew how he grades then I would know and you know what I think I think some people think that they think that he does great on a curve. Because I've had so many people say, well, he would never send anyone to hell. He's loving and forgiving and, and these kinds of things. I think some people think that there is a lot, of, a lot of different answers to the same question, right? And that's why we think that it doesn't really matter if you're this or that, you know, uh, belief or, or that religion. And I think some people think that you just have to get about 80% of it. So I just got to be as good as the other guy and if I'm at least as good as what they consider their top guy then I'm okay kind of thing. But the reality is is God does not grade on a curve. He has very specific answers and they have to be exact and it's 100% or nothing. That's what the Bible has painted for us and it's God's word that he is just you see the difficulty for us is that the living that living with god requires sinless perfection that's why it tells us in romans 3 and several other places by the way but romans 323 for all have what sin and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, that, that means like you, you miss the bullseye, and it doesn't matter if, if the bullseye is like a 12 and you hit a 10, you still miss. It's, it's only, only 12s are allowed, or it's a miss. But the reality is, is most of us haven't even hit the target, Right? We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And it tells us in Romans six twenty three what the wages of that sin or that miss is, for the wages of sin is death. So we know that he doesn't grade on a curve, that it's perfection. So God cannot accomplish his goal without fixing mankind, right? God has to fix us from our sin, or we have, and so that's the whole point. Why do you need a Savior? It's because we are all flawed. And God is just, and he is going to send us every single one of us to hell without fixing our problem. And so what did he do? He sent Jesus into the world to fix what we could not fix on our own. And that's the good news. But we have to, if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, they have to understand that they have shamed God, and that they've sinned against this holy God, and that he's not going to overlook anything. Anything in their life, and that without Jesus being their Lord and their Savior, without them surrendering to Him, they have zero hope and chance of being right with God. And we are eternal beings, and we are either going to spend all eternity with Him and in His presence, or we're going to spend all eternity in hell and away from His presence. But that is the ultimate truth. We need the Savior, Jesus. Because we need to be made holy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And Jesus is the only one that makes us holy. Here's the last thing. (coughs) And that is that Paul, his approach was, Paul knew his change to life was evidence of Jesus You know, this is so important because he got so much ridicule at the beginning, right? We already kind of walked through some of this. But he was the one, when his name was Saul, he was putting to death the Christians, left and right. And then when he changed, what is it that was going to convince him that he actually changed? His behavior. And his behavior changed night and day. Instantly, not only was he willing to kill people for for God's sake, now he is willing to die for Jesus' sake. And that willing to die, stone me if you want to stone me, but I'm going to continue to preach Jesus. Beat me and throw me in jail if you want to beat me, but I'm going to continue to preach Jesus. This living it out day in, day out was what convinced them that Jesus was true, that he literally saw the light and his life was forever changed. The greatest evidence that you will give your co workers, your grandkids, your kids, your friends is a life change in Jesus. It's going to be pretty hard for you to convince them that Jesus is all that you say that he is when he hasn't changed all that you say that he should change in a person, right? We are his, one of his greatest evidence. That's like the disciples. When the disciples were following Jesus, they were like, oh, you know, we can conquer anything. Let's go to this town and just show them who's who. And we had these sons of thunder that were ready to lightning bolt every single person that, you know, smarted off or did anything that they didn't think was right. And so they were these bold men. But then when Jesus was killed on the cross, what were they? They were coward, scared people. But when Jesus came back to life, all of a sudden, these bold men that were end up being scaredy cats end up being more than just bold. They were willing to lay down their life. They were not looking out for you know, anybody to protect them anymore. They were just like Paul, do what you want with me and you're not going to shut me up. And most of them were crucified. And that lays down so much evidence for Jesus himself. And that's the way Paul was. It says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. This is Paul's words, right? But Christ that lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. These should be not only words that we memorize, these should be words that we try to mimic every day of our lives. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. It tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, and do not, this is Paul again speaking, but he's, he's encouraging us, do not conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? He was an example of what Christ was. He was a representation of what Christ was. So his he, he life change was evidence to that. So no matter what, here's, here's some disclosing remarks. These are like such good things for us to. Remember when we are trying to share our faith with people to find common ground, right? Something that we can all uh, connect with. It is important for us to help them with the plausibility of this. And so there's so much evidence out there, but we have to know what the evidence is. It's good for us, but it's good for us when we are sharing with people the evidence that proves that Jesus is the Christ. And it is important for us to help people understand that they have shamed God They are guilty, they're sinners, and that they need a Savior. They are not going to be okay on their own. And the last thing is is for us to live it the way that God has called us to live it. To take up our cross and to follow him. You know, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. These four active approaches to sharing Jesus will be the best possible way that you can help the people in your life. To receive Jesus and not reject but one thing to keep in mind is that it's not 100% guaranteed. Because when we look at our scripture here, we know that he won a whole lot of people over. But there were some people that he did not. And they ended up causing all kinds of trouble with, with uh, Jason and his family. And they were just not going to buy into it. And there's going to be people in your life as well. But I think you try and I think you try and eventually you move on and find somebody else to try and realize that these are the ways for which we're going to be the most effective in doing it. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the encouragement that we get from Paul and how he just kept trying and he reasoned for three Sabbath days just because he knew that he could get through to some of these people and Father, it just I can't help but think of just all the people that are represented among us and our relationships who need Jesus. And help us, Father, just, just to glean from today's message ways that we can approach this, that we can find common ground, we can continue to reason and have conversation, that we can give them some of the answers to their questions, why this is so plausible. But mostly, Father, help us to know that the way that we live on a day-to-day basis is going to be some of the greatest evidence that we can provide for them. We thank you for the things that we learned here. In Jesus' name, amen.